Well, it is good to see you all again today on this Lord's Day. Um, we are coming to the end of another section in our study in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, it started all the way back in chapter 8. Uh, we've noticed there are some within the church at Corinth who were pushing the limits. Uh, we might call this group the I can do anything I want to group. Uh, we've seen them along the way, right? And then there was another group that we've been dealing with that was looking to restrict the freedom of others, and maybe we'd refer to them as uh, you can't do anything at all group. Uh, and these pulls from the two extremes are still the creators of a lot of tension within the church today. We sometimes refer to the extremes as license on the one hand, you can do whatever you want, and legalism on the other. You can't do anything except what I say, right? Um, we've seen going all the way back to chapter 6 that there, is a, there was a slogan going around the Corinthian church, and it's repeated again today in verse 23, all things are lawful. You know, a lot of people in the church were celebrating the freedoms that they had in Christ. Others were still bound by their consciences for various reasons. And this has been illustrated in the last several chapters by the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Many, like Paul, knew that the meat was just what? Just meat, right? The others really struggled with eating something that was offered to an idol. And Paul had been teaching the Corinthians what Christian freedom, what Christian liberty looks like in a church and how they should be able to live in unity even despite the differences they may have in matters of opinion, in matters of conscience. Now, at the end of this section of instruction, Paul gives a number of practical truths, a number of guidelines for how to live properly with Christian freedom. And I don't want to scare you, but I have ten of them. So I'm going to be speaking very rapidly this morning and really just kind of trying to summarize these verses as Paul gives us kind of a a shotgun approach here at the end of this section with how to live properly with Christian freedom. So the first guideline we're going to look at comes up right away here in verse 23, and it's just the idea that in Christian freedom, some restrictions apply. Some restrictions apply. Look at verse 23 again. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Now, as we saw back in chapter 6, when Paul refers to all things, he's referring to all things that are not specifically named in the Bible as sinful, okay? So Paul's obviously not saying we can do anything we want to, right? There are, thus says the Lord, this is wrong, okay? He's not referring to that. He, he, these are the things about which the Bible doesn't say anything specifically. 
where there's no rule written down. There's no statement concerning a, a specific attitude or, or action of Christian behavior. For example, should a Christian go and watch the Indianapolis Colts? Well, it is lawful. It's permissible. But is it sensible? Is it helpful? Is it beneficial? Is it constructive? Does it build us up? Now, that may seem a little humorous. But the question that we should ask when we approach these kinds of things in life is not just Am I allowed to do it? But will this behavior be useful and beneficial? It's not only necessary to ask what is allowed, what we're allowed to do, but also to consider the effect of such an action on someone else. Will it cause spiritual growth? Will it allow me to grow up to be a stronger Christian? Will it encourage my children to grow in grace? Will it mean that the people who are my friends and co-workers and neighbors will follow Jesus because of what I do? That's the question. And the truth is, it is only the love of Jesus, isn't it, that can fill our hearts and constrain our minds to produce this perfect kind of freedom. So I'm not asking, and I don't think Paul's asking here, you know, am I allowed to listen to this kind of music? Am I allowed to attend this kind of activity? There's a deeper, there's a more Christian question. Is it beneficial? Is it constructive? Will it build others up? Let's go on to the second guideline. It's kind of really an extension of verse 23 expressed as a principle here. And that is, to put the concerns of others first. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. You know, this addresses this tendency that we have inside of us, in our flesh, to say, my business is my business. Or to say, what I do in my own time is my concern. It doesn't involve anybody else. Well, here's the truth. What I do when I'm not in front of you, when I drive in the car, when I travel, when I'm on my own, when I'm reading books, when I'm listening to music, when I'm on the internet, what I do in my own time is not my own business. It's your business. It's my wife's business. It's my children's business. It's my mom's business, my brother's and sister's business. Why? Because the Bible says as Christians, we don't live to ourselves and we don't die to ourselves. So if we live with the illusion that whatever we do in our own time is just my own business and I can do whatever I choose to do, I will never learn to live in the, in the joy of Christian freedom, true Christian freedom. Take 20, verse 24, turn it around the other way. And what, we, what do we end up with? The concerns of others first. L- let me just cross-reference this in one other place quickly because 
Like I said, I've got a lot to cover today. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You'll know these verses as soon as I start to read them. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does 1 Corinthians 10.24 mean? Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. I think it means Philippians 2, 3, and 4. That's how it works itself out. And then in verse 25, he goes on to apply this principle to the Corinthians in very practical terms, the subject he's been talking about all the way back to chapter 8. And and the third guideline is, don't be so sensitive. Verse 25 to 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, Eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Some of Paul's readers, like some of us sometimes, were clearly oversensitive. They were taking this whole matter to an extreme. You, you can imagine them at the marketplace, you know, going up to the butcher at the window and asking all these intricate questions about where this meat is sourced from, you know, and what has been the process for the meat to get to here where it is? And Paul proves the silliness of living with such a sensitive conscience because he quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from Psalm 124 here, and he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, Paul is saying, even if the meat had been offered to an idol, that's irrelevant because God made all of it, and he made it for our good. When he writes to Timothy, when Paul writes to Timothy over in his first letter, 1 Timothy 4, 4 and 5, he says something very similar to Timothy. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, this is very practical stuff for the Corinthians. And what Paul is saying is this. When we're on the receiving end of hospitality from unbelieving friends, and when the food comes and hits the table, don't start up a big theological discussion about where the food might come from. You know, you can imagine this lady's working hard in her kitchen, making this food, this this, this delicious roast that she got from the, you know, over from the temple market, you know. And um, she sets it out in front of you and don't immediately say, where'd you get this? You know? And don't follow it up by, have you been to the temple today? You know? And then don't hit her up about idol sacrifices and every other thing. Paul says, just eat what put in front of you. Just eat the food. Sounds like your mom before you go to a friend's house, right? Just eat it. Here's the principle. We should not forfeit the privilege of Christian freedom lightly. The only reason we should give up the privilege of Christian freedom is if it's going to offend another, and Paul's about to talk about that. So be careful not to be overly sensitive 
or overly critical or constantly asking fussy questions or sitting in the corner at the party having a little party by yourself and trying to psychoanalyze everybody else at the party and their motives and what they're doing. Just relax, Paul says. Eat the meat. Next guideline. Number four, be considerate of the weaker conscience. This is 28 and 29. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? These ver- uh, verses, tw- especially verse 29 and 30, are, are difficult verses to interpret. But l- let, me, let me give you my studied attempt at what I think this means. The only way I can understand verse, 30, verse 28 is if I assume that the someone that's mentioned in verse 28 is a fellow believer. It, it really doesn't make sense if it's someone else. It, if it's the unbeliever who comes out and says, this is idol food or whatever that I'm putting in front of you. It doesn't make a lot of sense with what he goes on to say. So it's the idea that, you know, you know, you know you, you've been invited to this lost person's home for a meal, perhaps along with others. And even though perhaps it's not your practice to eat idol meat um, for whatever reason, but your conscience is free about the issue. You allow for Christians who might partake in it. Your conscience is free. But, but here you're sitting at the meal, and you have, what do you have right in front of you? Idol meat. Now, what does the Bible say about idol meat? It doesn't address whether it's right or wrong, sinful or not, to eat idol meat. It's a matter of conscience. It's not a black and white issue. It's one of those debatable issues. It's one of those matters of opinion, one of those matters of preferences. And it's been put in front of you by a non-Christian, Paul says. What are you going to do? Paul says, you're free to go ahead and eat it. However, and here comes the exception, across the table from you is one of your fellow believers who you know has a major problem with eating idol meat. Perhaps he used to be an idol worshiper before becoming a Christian. And now you're in a real dilemma. On the one hand, we don't want to offend the person who's serving us the meat. And our conscience is free. But there's a brother over there looking across it at us. And we may have an impact on that person's life that is far more detrimental than the offense that we may cause to our hosts. What do you do? I think Paul's saying here, offend the hosts and don't offend your brother. Doesn't that that seem like what he's saying? You don't eat the meat both for the sake of the man who told you and for his conscience's sake. So it's, it's not your conscience... Paul Paul clarifies it. It's the other man's conscience. And so if the other man's conscience is troubled and he brings up the issue, Paul says, don't eat the meat. 
Now, I want you to notice something. There's an important distinction here. This is a restriction of activity. It's not a restriction of your conscience. We're simply restricting our actions. Our conscience stays free. We don't bind our conscience to the issue that that man's conscience is bound to. But we restrict our activity, our behavior. So our conscience isn't controlled by another believer. Our activity is maybe controlled by our response in love to another believer, but not our conscience. Do you understand that distinction? Am I making that clear enough? Maybe not. We'll move on. Number five. Like I said, these are hard verses. Number five. Paul says, do not allow a brother's preference to control all of your activities. Verse 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, wait a minute, Pastor Brian. Didn't you just tell us to do exactly that? Well, not exactly. The truth is, we can push principles to extremes. And I think that's what's going on here, where it can just become foolishness. And the fact is, some believers try to use this principle as a means of manipulating other believers. Perhaps you've had this experience in your life. Because they know that the Bible compels you to restrict your activity if they have a sensitive conscience on an issue of debate, of opinion, then sometimes they use that against you in a manipulative way to try to get you to do just what they want, not motivated by love at all. So if we were ever tempted to take this principle to an extreme, I think it would mean our behavior would come entirely from what other Christians say and think. And we would walk around all the time living in fear. Oh, what does that person think about this? And what does that person say about this? And oh, I don't know what to do. What if that person says that and this person says this? And what if we're all in the room together? What am I, how, how do I live? What do I do? I'm paralyzed. I don't know what to do. Paul says, don't go there. Don't go to the extreme. Like I mentioned, the end of 29 and verse 30, they're difficult to interpret. But I think what Paul's saying here is this. If we can eat the meat with thanksgiving to God... Right, So it's not a conscience issue for us, or whatever the issue is. If we can partake with thanksgiving to God and we're not offending a brother, then eat. Here's how another author explains it further that was helpful to me. He said, believers should feel free to buy food sold in the market and to enjoy a meal at the home of an unbeliever without inquiring whether the food was offered to an idol. Even if others criticize believers in this situation, the believers have freedom to eat as long as they partake of the food with thanksgiving. Eating food with thanksgiving acknowledges God's lordship and sovereignty, recognizing his kindness in providing for human needs. If this interpretation is correct, the author says, there are limits on the constraints believers should feel from others. Do you understand? So we, in love, we do restrict our activities sometimes so that we don't cause 
someone to offend. And we'll talk about that in a minute as well, what that means. But that is not an unlimited principle. And if we take it to the extreme, then, our, then we'll never live in, in true freedom, will we? We'll just be walking around in fear all the time, wondering what someone thinks about this or that. Now, from here, Paul gives us four verses full of positive guidelines. and very incur- These are ways that are very easy for us to build up and, and be helpful to other people. So, point number six, verse 31, focus on the glory of God. Focus on the glory of God. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Why am I doing what I'm doing? That's the question. The Corinthians have been talking about their freedoms, and they're preoccupied with their freedoms. And Paul is saying to them, you can't be at the same time preoccupied with your personal freedoms and also be giving God the glory due his name at the same time. And I think that one of the sad mistakes that we often make, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, We often, as humans, we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives to the exclusion of our faith. Do you know what I mean? So we go to the office, and we have to focus on this work. And then when we come home, you know, we focus on family. And when I'm finished with family, then it's recreation and hobbies. But that's, and then Sunday, we focus on God, right? That's not how it works. Christianity is, is about embracing the whole of our lives. Everything about us, anything we do, is for the glory of God. And, and, and when we suddenly begin to understand that the God of the universe has, has saved us, redeemed us, employed us in his service so that we might give him the glory in everything no matter what we're doing, then it puts a different spin on the whole of our lives. How does that work? Let me give you a couple uncomfortable examples. Uncomfortable because we all struggle with them, except for the few of you that are perfect. Um, here's a question. Are you tidy or untidy? We never declare God's glory in untidiness. But we do declare the excellence of his being in tidiness. He is a God of order. He is not a God of chaos. If we look at your room, would we see him reflected there? If if your bedroom looks like a tornado went through it, but you're all put together here at church then there is a disengagement, isn't there, in our mind between what happens here and what happens in your room. Now, I want to encourage you this morning. I encourage myself. Cleanliness, godliness, tidiness, they're interwoven. Why? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What about the issue of punctuality? Now I'm going to start putting the, the faces of people up on the screen who arrived late to the service today. No, no, I'm not. 
But God is not glorified by a lack of punctuality. Why? God never did anything too soon. He never does anything too late. And he never will. So when we show a disregard for others by our desire simply to please ourselves and let them wait, whether it be our wives or our children, our bosses, our church family, that doesn't bring glory to God's name. And I realize that there's all kinds of things that are outside our control. I'm not talking about those. So whether you eat or drink or swim or study or love or ride your bike or clean your room or brush your teeth or sweep the floor or take out the trash or phone your grandma, do all to the glory of God. It's the one right answer to the same question every time. Why are you doing that? I'm doing it for the glory of God. That should be our answer. The man or woman who does not know God, the one who is lost, the one who is in darkness, is not saying, in my life, Lord, be glorified. They're not saying, you know, in my business dealings, Lord, be glorified. They're not saying, you know, that their life would be a sacrifice of praise, as Hebrew says. By nature, lost men and women turn their back on God. By nature, lost men and women live in unbelief. So when we express belief, and when we find in our lives a desire to glorify him, to make his name great, to imitate him, to reflect him in all the aspects of our lives, it's a result of his grace and his goodness toward us. Number seven, don't cause others to stumble. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. I take that, uh, because there were Jews and Greeks in the church of God, I take that to mean unsaved Jews, unsaved Greeks, and the church of God as different categories there. Our freedom needs to be restrained by this truth. Our exercise of legitimate lifestyle, free, may be the means of causing a brother or sister or someone from the lost world to trip up and fall on their face in relationship to God and the gospel. So Paul says, make sure that you don't cause other people to fall on their face. By your attitude, by your behavior, be determined neither to cause offense or harm or injury by your attitude or your lifestyle to anyone. Now, this is a self-administered test. You can do this at home. You ready? Here's the test. Does my activity, do my attitudes cause other people to stumble in relationship to the Bible, in relationship to the good news of Jesus Christ, in relationship to discovering what it means to be a Christian. Okay, dads, 
Is there anything that you do with your money, with your time, with your relationships that will cause your children to fall flat on their spiritual face? Okay, boyfriends, is there anything you've been doing with your girlfriend when you've taken her out on dates which would cause her to fall flat on your face, on her face spiritually? Mr. Businessman, Mr. Business, Mrs. Businesswoman, is there anything you're going back to tomorrow morning that's in a pile on your desk that you know is going to push you in a direction to cause someone to fall flat on their face spiritually? That's what Paul's saying. Take the test. Is there anything in my attitude or anything in my lifestyle that is set up to cause others to fall, to fail? Now, I want you to notice something, because this is another one of those phrases that is often taken out of context and used to manipulate people. Notice the willful element in this. There will always be people who take offense. You know what I'm talking about? There will always be people who take offense on account of others. But the issue here is that we are not to give offense. That's what Paul says. We are not to willfully decide that, hey, I'm free to do whatever I want to do, so if you fall because of this, I don't care. Paul says don't do that. Don't actually cause people to stumble in regards to the Lord, in regards to His gospel. Don't do it. Number eight, be guided by the good of others and not personal advantage. Look at verse 33, just the first part. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Philip's translation paraphrases it this way. I myself try to adapt to all men without considering my own advantage, but their advantage. Paul displays, really, through these last four verses, a very attractive selflessness. Did you see it? It's God's glory, not his freedom. It's pleasing others, not pleasing himself. It's their advantage, not his own personal fulfillment. Not, and it's contrary to public opinion, too. The key to loving others does not lie in loving ourselves, but in loving God. And Paul's strategy here is not some kind of manipulative political process. Some people say that, you know, oh yeah, Paul, sure, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. I know quite a few politicians that are just like that. Paul is not into politics here. He's not trying to just curry favor with people, just trying to tell people what they want. The, the context makes it clear, doesn't it? He's embracing a genuine disregard for his own interests in light of the needs of the many. He's saying, I'm not living in my Christian lifestyle so that I will feel blessed and I will be honored. I have a bigger objective. And that's the good of the many. And that's what motivated his life. Number nine, the rest of verse 33, seek that many may be saved in the exercise of Christian freedom. 
Look what he says. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. It's the title of my message, by the way. That they may be saved. What's the real issue of Christian freedom? I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of the many. What does that mean, Paul? That they may be saved. The whole, Christ, the whole issue of Christian freedom, Paul says, is not about I get my way or you get your way. The whole issue of Christian freedom is about the salvation of those who don't know Christ. So that people who are today in darkness may be brought into light. And this is nothing new. You remember chapter 9? Flip back there. Hold your place here. Chapter 9, when Paul dealt with his rights as an apostle, remember that whole section? Remember we got down to verses 19 through 23, and it, and it was like over and over and over and over. Did you hear it? I have made myself a servant to all. Why, Paul? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why, Paul? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Why, Paul? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Why, Paul? That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. Why, Paul? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why, Paul? That by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel can it be any clearer and it's the reason he gives us here i'm not into this paul says for my own good and you're not to be in it either for your own good but only so that many may be saved the church brothers and sisters is not a nice little box or nice little chest we're supposed to keep all of our gold stars for our good Christian behavior. The church is supposed to be a hatchery where eggs are popping all the time. Uh, by the way, if you need some eggs, Carl's got you covered. Uh, check the refrigerator out there today. The church, is, the church is a hatchery. We're supposed to be seeing people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And when I say the church, I don't mean this building. I mean the people in it. The church. Now, if you think about this, you might get a little confused. Some of us do at times. Pastor Brian, a minute ago, you're talking about focusing on God's glory as if that was the ultimate thing. And now, it's supposed to be winning people to faith in Jesus Christ that's the ultimate thing. That's right. That's right. And, and I can't explain it very well, but Jesus can. This is how he put it in John 15 and verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Do you want to prove? Do you want to prove that you're a disciple of Jesus? Don't just show up for church on Sunday. Do you want to prove you're a disciple of Jesus? Don't just put money in the offering plate. Don't just take communion. You want to prove you're a disciple of Jesus Christ? Go hatch some eggs. Go spread the gospel and, and pray and plead with the Lord to open men and women's blind eyes and see him come to Jesus. God is glorified as man is evangelized. It's all of the above. 
Last, my time's up, but I will finish the last one. The imitators of Christ, verse 1 of chapter 11. What's he saying here? The imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow my example. What is that example, Paul? I'm not seeking my own good. In other words, selflessness for the sake of the salvation of others. That's the example that Paul has just given to us in context, right? And he calls us to follow his example. And as we follow that example, it sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Because Paul is following the example of someone else. Our Savior. And what was Jesus' example? He came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus didn't come here demanding anything. He came humbly, took on the form of a servant, was obedient all the way to the cross. I'm going to ask the praise team to return to the front. We'll sing some songs here as we go into the the Lord's table. I'll encourage the leadership team to prepare. As these folks are coming, take your Bible and just turn to Luke 15, just for a moment as they're coming, just to cement this application into our minds. Luke 15, you know the stories? Three parables in Luke 15. First parable, the lost sheep. There's 99 sheep, but the shepherd goes out and looks for the one who's lost. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? The law of averages says you're probably going to lose about 1%. A lot of business guys, would you prepare to just take that as a tax write-off? Not this shepherd. He has to go out and find the one who's lost. And he finds it, puts it on his shoulders, comes home, calls his friends together, says, let's have a party. Look at what Jesus says. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you believe that? Jesus said that. Heaven is happier when one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ then when 99 of us get together and have a Bible study, heaven rejoices in the salvation of the lost. Second parable in Luke 15, the lost coin. Remember, the woman can't find it. She searches her whole house, sweeps, 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 sweeps. Finally finds it. Verse 10, just so I tell you, Jesus says, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Third parable in Luke 15, the parable of the lost son. Verse 24, they find the son. The son comes home. The the dad's happy. He's like, let's have a party. The father's words, my son, for this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. A picture of salvation. And they began to celebrate. But they all didn't celebrate, did they? The older brother was ticked. Verse 28, He was angry and refused to go in. Wouldn't even go to the party. Why? Oh, things weren't falling out the way he wanted them to. He had been a good little boy. You know, he had done all the things he was supposed to, and his dad didn't give him a goat. He can't get excited about the fact that his brother was saved, was found. That's a bad thing to happen to a Christian. And that's a real scary thing to happen to a church. When the spirit of the older brother takes hold, 
in a church, evangelism goes out the door for good. When we can't rejoice that the people that we think least likely to get turned around get turned around, then we can't rejoice anymore at all. You see where this brings us, right? Right here. This brings us to the cross. Because it's at the cross where all of my arrogance, and trust me, I've got plenty, all of my arrogance, all of my foolish behavior gets crucified there at the cross. Where my willingness to compromise with evil, it's dealt a death blow at the cross. At the cross, my legalism is laid low in the dust. And it's at the cross that my self-centered preoccupations are seen for what they really are. It's at the cross that I remember two things. And John Newton put it this way, and I love the way he put it. The two things at the cross that I see. One, that I am a great sinner. And two, that Christ is a great Savior. That's where we need to be this morning. We need to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind, and all our strength. And when we do, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. And Christian freedom will take proper root and proper application among all of us. And the world will see it. They will see our good works, like Jesus said in Matthew 5. And they will glorify Father, the Father in heaven. They will come to know Jesus because of the way we live, the way we exercise our freedoms and restrict our freedoms. They will see that and their eyes will be opened and they will come to Christ and he will receive them no matter how blind they are, no matter how lost they are. He will go and find them and carry them on his shoulders and bring them home.